A prominent sect of Jews during the days of Jesus were the Pharisees. They were the Jewish right-wingers, the legalists, and they were revered by the common folk. They were thought to be more righteous than other Jews. The Pharisees certainly fostered that impression. They went out of their way to appear holy. Recently, I came up with a list. It's a top ten list. Could you guess? Here are the top ten ways the Bible would be different if the Pharisees had been Southerners. How do you know it's going to be funny? Here are the top ten ways the Bible would be different if the Pharisees had been Southerners. Number ten, kosher would be anything cooked in bacon grease. Number nine, rather than pray standing on the street corner, the Pharisees would pray in the middle of the trailer park. Number eight, stock car races would be forbidden on the Sabbath. Number seven, rather than the tithe of mint and anise and cumming, it would be the tithe of grits and black-eyed peas and collard greens. The Pharisees would refer to the high priest as a good old boy. That's all you're going to give that one? I thought that was funny. Number five, instead of whitewashed tombs, the Pharisees would be compared to bondoed pickup trucks. Number four, ritual cleansings would be performed with lava soap. Yeah. Come up now. Come on. I, I made these up on my own. I didn't steal this from anybody. This is from my own. I made this up. Number three, the Talmud would contain 59 regulations on how to spit tobacco juice. Number two, the rival schools of Rabbi Halil and Rabbi Shammai would be replaced with the schools of Rabbi Bubba and Rabbi Junior. <laughs> and then the number one way the Bible would be different if the Pharisees had been Southerners, the typical Jewish greeting would be changed from shalom to howdy, y'all. All right. Yeah, great, 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 great. Realize, even though the common folk held the Pharisees in high esteem, Jesus was not their friend. Some of his harshest words were reserved for them. In fact, much of the Sermon on the Mount is a contrast between Pharisaical practices and true godliness. In chapter 5 of Matthew, Jesus contrasts the righteousness of the Pharisees with true righteousness Whereas in chapter 6, he contrasts the worship of the Pharisees with true worship. When we offer our gifts and our acts of worship to God, it is always our motive that matters. As a bit of intro, in Matthew 6, Jesus talks about three activities. Our giving, our praying, and our fasting. And as he does you'll notice that he never says if you give or if you pray or if you fast. Check verses 2, 5, and 16. It's always when you do these things. I believe if you're born anew of God's Spirit, if you've tasted of God's grace, you'll want to give and pray and fast. It won't be a matter of if, but when. Think about giving. When God gives to us as freely and as lavishly as He has, it's only natural then for us to want to return the favor and give something back to God. And what about prayer? 
Now that Jesus has established a connection between us and God, it's only natural to go online and surf our many blessings. And even fasting, as we fatten our soul on the spiritual bread, there'll be times when we'll be so enthralled with God, we'll forget to do lunch. We'll forego a meal or two in order to spend more time with Him. A new life in Christ drives us to give, to pray, to fast. We'll look for ways to deepen our intimacy with Jesus. And yet, here's the problem. Intimacy can be imitated. Rather than give, pray, and fast out of a desire for God, wrong motivations can seep in. And the most sinister of all motives is the desire to be seen by men. Jesus warns us in verse 1, Take heed that you do not do your charitable deeds before men to be seen by them. Otherwise, you have no reward from your Father in heaven. This phrase, to be seen, it's an English translation of the Greek word which meant theater. Jesus is warning us not to turn our worship into showmanship. Never turn a passion into a performance. When acts of worship are staged to impress people, they cease to impress God. As G. Campbell Morgan once wrote, motive is everything in the kingdom. Listen to this paraphrase of verse 1. It hammers home the point Jesus is making. Be especially careful when you are trying to be good so that you don't make a performance out of it. It might be good theater, but the God who made you won't be applauding. It's been said we're all just actors on a stage. And in a sense, that's true. But the question Jesus asks us in Matthew chapter 6 is, who is our audience? Is it God or is it other people? Paul points out in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 that each of us, each of our righteous deeds will one day be tried and tested to determine, quote, of what sort it is. In other words, what's the motive behind the act? Self-glorifying acts will prove to be as combustible as wood, hay, and stubble, whereas God-glorifying acts will be tre treasured as fine gold. In that day, Jesus will test each act of worship or service to determine of what sort it is, while today, this is our opportunity to sort it out beforehand. Every year, the Ringling Brothers and Barnum and Bailey Circus comes to town. And for several years in a row, our family was a regular. We loved the circus. Bears on motorcycles. How can you not get excited about bears on motorcycles? And trapeze artists and lion tamers and the human cannonballs. Oh, my. When the ringmaster, all dressed up in top hat and tail, stepped into the center circle and the microphone fell from the sky, my kids would scoot up on the edge of their seat. They were all ears as the PA thundered, Welcome to the greatest show on earth. And our Lord Jesus could have pointed his finger at those Pharisees and said the same thing, Welcome to the greatest show on earth. The Pharisees were priestly performers. They were spiritual showboats. They had turned the worship of God into a virtual circus. You know, I'm sure my family's not the only family that enjoys the circus. Lots of people love an extravagant performance. Actually, it's a human fascination. 
And it doesn't go away when people come to church. The average person is drawn to the flash and to the splash. They love to be entertained, even on Sundays. And if pastors were honest, they would admit that as upfront people, there's a tendency in all of us that likes to entertain. Oh, our pride loves to hear the oohs and the ahs. Pastors enjoy the applause and the limelight. We like it when people think that we're more spiritual than we are. As pastors, our flesh likes the view from on top of the pedestal, and there are some people who like to put us there. But understand, when the leader hot dogs and when the people pour on the relish, it makes for a dangerous combination. For if pastors aren't careful, the tendency in both them and in their people will combine to turn the church into a circus. The Pharisees of Jesus' day had made a three-ring circus out of their worship of God. In ring one, there was the game of giving. In ring two, the performance of praying. And in ring three, the farce of fasting. In this passage, Jesus wants to keep his kids, both then and now, from running off and joining the circus. In ring one of this pharisaical circus was the game of giving. Notice Jesus says to us in verse 2, Therefore, when you do a charitable deed, do not sound a trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may have glory from men. The Pharisees had turned giving into grandstanding. During my son Max's last year of baseball at South Gwinnett, I volunteered to be the press box announcer. This is a big job. Pretty prestigious. I had multiple responsibilities. Not the least of which was to cue up the music for the batter's stride to the plate. He had some stride to the plate music. Every player on the team had their own music, a little clip that I would play when they walked up to home plate and dug into the batter's box. Some personalized theme music. And likewise, when the Pharisees dug into their pockets to pull out an offering for God, they also had their own music that would alert the crowd as to who was up to bat. When everyone heard the trumpet sound, they knew which rabbi was stepping up to give an offering. Oh, but as far as God was concerned, he'd already struck out. Of course, we laugh at the Pharisees' bombastic, grandiose display of attention-grabbing. None of us would ever hire a jazz band to draw attention to ourselves when we drop money in the offering box. But have we tooted our horn in other ways? When you share your testimony with a friend, is the emphasis on you, what you've done for God, more so than on what God has done for you? Your generosity, your courage, your sacrifice, your compassion, when you brag, I mean mean share, none of us would ever brag, but when you share, is it about you or is it really about the Lord? Yet look at what happens when we succumb to this temptation. Jesus says, Assuredly I say to you, you have your reward. That's it. That's all you get. 
You do it so that people will see and glorify you. Buddy, that's all you've got. Hope you enjoyed that pat on the back from your grandma because you've just forfeited your heavenly reward. You've got the only reward you're ever going to get. Whereas if you've just shown some restraint, practiced a little humility, man, recalled that the glory belongs to God alone and kept your mouth shut, then the God of the universe, the giver of every perfect gift, would one day bestow on you the riches and the treasures of heaven. Instead, you got a handshake from a guy you'll probably never see again. How satisfying is that? Realize there is a bit of a balance here. In Matthew 5, verse 16, Jesus told us, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works. You don't have to cover up what God is doing in your life or in your ministry. Rejoice, praise the Lord, give a witness. Psalm 96 tells us, give to the Lord the glory to his name. But it's the rest of the verse in Matthew, chapter 5, verse 16, that provides us the balance. Jesus said, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. It's the glorifying of your Father that's your motive, that's your goal. You see, motive matters in ministry, and our motive will shape our methods. If you want God glorified, you'll avoid the curtain calls. You'll keep a low profile. You'll conduct your ministry in a manner that deflects attention to God rather than absorb it for yourself. Our ministry should be a reflector, not a sponge. Here's a great rule that will help you and I strike the proper balance. When tempted to hide, we are to show. But when tempted to show, we are to hide. This is what Jesus tells us in verses 3 and 4. But when you do a charitable deed, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, that your charitable deed may be in secret. Here's the principle again. When tempted to show, make sure you hide. Jesus says, even hide it from yourself. Don't let one hand know what the other hand's up to. The worst mistake any kind of Christian ministry can make is to believe its own press clippings. Always remember, flattery is like perfume. Sniff it, but don't swallow it. Jesus tells us, if you do a charitable deed in a way that truly glorifies God and not you, then your Father who sees in secret will Himself reward you openly. Reminds me of Lawrence DePrimo's experience. On a cold November night in 2012, Officer DePrimo was on duty in Times Square. The New York policeman saw an older, barefoot, homeless man. A few bystanders were laughing at the fellow. DePrimo said it was so cold that night that he had worn two pairs of socks and yet his feet were still frozen. When the officer asked the homeless man if he had anything to use to cover his feet, he replied, Oh, it's okay, sir. I've never had a pair of shoes, but God bless you. Primo was so moved, he asked the man his shoe size, and then he walked into the nearby Skechers. He bought the man a new pair of boots, the warmest shoes they had. It cost him 100 bucks. And here's the deal. Larry DePrimo's deed would have never been noticed had it not been for a tourist from Arizona. Jennifer Foster said later, the officer wanted nothing in return and didn't know I was watching. Jennifer grabbed her phone and she snapped a photo. The next day, she posted it on the NYPD's Facebook page. 
Overnight, the photo went viral. Since Jennifer's posting, it's now had over 614,000 likes and it has prompted 48,000 comments. It's turned Lawrence to Primo into a hero. One man even wrote of the police officer's simple act, it restored my faith in humanity. You see, if Larry DePrimo had tooted his own horn about it, if he had made sure everyone knew that he, what he was doing, his charity would have died on the spot. It would have lost all its velocity. You see, it is the selflessness and the humility of an act that infuses it with power. This is true of all our charitable deeds and our gifts to God. Do your good deed humbly, inconspicuously, and one day the king of the universe will call you out before the heavenly host and before every person who's ever lived and will say to you, well done, good and faithful servant. But you do that same deed to be noticed by men. And I hope you enjoy all the pats on the back you're going to get from folks. You'll forget their names by the time you get home because that's the only reward you're ever going to get. You have your reward. If you want to live for Jesus, don't get caught up in ring one of this pharisaical circus, the game of giving. Or ring two, the performance of prayer. Jesus says in verse 5, and when you pray, you shall not be like the hypocrites. Oh, every circus has its clowns. And I suppose this would be a good description of the Pharisees. They made themselves up to be something they were not. They hid their real motivations behind the mask of appearance. Oh, the Greeks didn't use the term clown. They called them hypocrites, from which we get our word hypocrite. But I'll let you in on a little secret. A clown by any other name is still a clown. And the Pharisees were the clowns of Judaism. They wore the face paint of humility and the rubber nose of charity and the big floppy shoes of sacrifice. And yet under the surface there was a sinister self-righteousness. And let me define for you the evil of self-righteousness. It's the belief in clearance based on appearance. That looking good makes you good. That looking holy makes you holy. It's all in how you look. Our appearance gains for us a clearance with God. It's the hope that in God's eyes, a good show makes up for no substance. I'm sorry, but that's not true. I've heard when the repairs were made to the aging ship, the Queen Mary, and when they discovered the smokestacks, when they dismantled them, it was discovered that the metal stacks had actually rotted out, that all was left in place of those metal stacks were the countless coats of paint that had once covered them. You know, when I pull into Heaven's Harbor and God inspects me, I want Him to find some substance, not just whitewash. A Christian can get so proficient in the performance that the performance replaces the passion that once prompted it. It's no longer ministry. It's now just clowning. Jesus continues to describe the pompous practices of the Pharisees in verse 6. He says, For they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the corners of the streets, that they may be seen by men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But you, when you pray, go into your room, 
And when you have shut your door, pray to your Father who is in the secret place, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. Prayer needs to be personal. When the Pharisees prayed, oh, they addressed God, but they were speaking to the crowd. Reminds me of the little boy. He was praying at the top of his lungs. He was shouting to God his desire for a new bike. Finally, his mom popped her head in the room and said, Son, you don't have to be so loud. Do you think God is hard of hearing? Little Johnny answered, No, Mom, but Grandma is, and she's in the other room. (laughs) He was addressing God, but he was talking to Grandma. The Roman philosopher Cicero once said, Of all villainy, there is none more base than that of the hypocrite, who at the moment he is most false, takes care to appear most virtuous. No activity is more sacred than prayer. It is our lifeline to God. Thus, to use it for self-promotion, can you imagine a worse evil? In 1960, a Navy aircraft engineer named Kelly Johnson coined a term that has since became famous. He spoke of the KISS principle. Ever heard of it? It's an acronym that means keep it simple, stupid. Or I could say keep it simple, saint. Johnson Johnson believed that the simpler the system, the better it would work. He even challenged his designers to build aircraft that could be repaired by a typical craftsman using common tools. And when it comes to prayer, I believe that Jesus would also advocate the KISS principle. That simplicity is best. For the Pharisees did just the opposite. They vastly complicated prayer. They made it long and tedious and boring. In fact, in the next few verses, Jesus seeks to simplify prayer for his followers. Notice verse 7. And when you pray, do not use vain repetitions as the heathen do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Therefore, do not be like them. What concerned the Pharisees was the wording and the articulation and the volume and the length of the prayer. It was far more art than heart. Jewish prayers were rote and repetitious. Each day, as early as possible in the morning, or as the rabbis like to say, before it was light enough to differentiate between the colors white and blue, the Jews would pray the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. They would pray that prayer. That would be followed by the Shimone, or the 18, a collection of 18 prayers, all memorized. The Pharisees had scripted, canned prayers for all aspects of life, for their mealtimes, for their weddings, funerals, entering or exiting a city. They had a canned prayer. They even had a prayer for breaking in new furniture. My wife has such a prayer. Lord, thank you for my tight-fisted husband. He finally gave in. In addition, Jewish prayers were long prayers, like the Energizer Bunny. They went on and on and on. Jesus said of the Pharisees, they think they will be heard for their many words, but not so. The implication here is that the prayer's length is not what counts. Hey, it is a prayer's strength, not its length that matters. I hold to the old axiom, a short prayer will reach God if the person praying it doesn't live too far away. Pharisaical prayers were also wordy and verbose. 
The phrase Jesus used, translated vain repetition, is a Greek word, batologio, or idle, thoughtless talk. It's words without meaning. It's phrases without purpose. It's like baseball chatter. You've heard the kids in the outfield. Hey, hey, batter, come on, batter, hey, batter, hey, batter. You've heard all that. Just empty noises, just cliches made by the players to keep themselves alert. And yet you see this today among the Orthodox Jews, the same kind of prayers. They, they bob up and down and they chant their canned prayers. I've seen them do this at the Wailing Wall there in Jerusalem. They're praying their prayers, they're bobbing up and down while they're walking around shaking hands and socializing with their friends. Their prayer is obviously not coming from their heart. When I study the biblical prayers, the prayers mentioned in God's Word, they all cut to the chase. They get right to the point. It's their brevity that makes them powerful. The purpose of prayer, let me remind you, it isn't to inform God of your situation. You don't think God knows? It's not to rehash God's different options or to make your own suggestions for what He should and shouldn't do. No. Jesus reminds us in verse 8, For your Father knows the things you have need of before you ask Him. Our job is to simply ask. It's true, if you want to pray more and pray better, the best approach is to simplify. You know, because I'm a pastor, I pray so often that I tend to get mechanical in the formation of my prayers. And I can lose the spontaneity that God desires. I have to work hard at keeping my prayers from devolving into the rote and the routine. Here's a definition for prayer that guides me. Prayer is when God warms His hands at the fire of man's heart. Could God warm His hands at your heart? True prayer might come out of the mouth, but it originates in our hearts. It's sincere, fresh, genuine, passionate. One night when the kids were just tots, we were in the car. We were headed down the freeway. I suggested that we pray. First Kathy prayed, then Zach, and then Natalie prayed. Finally, it was my turn. But I'll never forget how Natalie concluded her prayer. She said, in Jesus' name, amen. And now, God, here's Dad. <laughs> it was as if she had God on the phone and she was just handing the phone to me. And ever since that day, I've tried to pray with my daughter's example in mind. I want to talk to God as naturally as I would if I had a friend on the phone. But Jesus not only teaches us how not to pray, He also instructs us how to pray by giving us a model prayer. You know, Jesus knew that some things are better caught than taught, like prayer. The best way to learn to pray is by doing. And so in verse 9, in this manner, therefore pray. The phrase in this manner can be translated along these lines, after this pattern. Jesus is giving his disciples a model, a prototypical prayer. We often call this the Lord's Prayer, but it's not. Jesus would never pray, forgive us our debts, for he had no need for forgiveness. He had never sinned. Verses 9 through 13 are better titled the disciples' prayer. And this prayer teaches us the flow, the rhythm of prayer. For it begins and ends with praise. The middle section is about petition, and throughout, it's laced with intercession. Notice the plural pronouns that appear in this prayer, 
our Father, give us, lead us, implied is that we shouldn't just pray this for ourselves, but for each other. Jesus begins, our Father in heaven. The word translated Father is the Aramaic word Abba or Daddy. Jesus puts us on intimate terms with God. Through the work of Christ, God is our Father. He is our Daddy. We can run to Him with our needs. We have access to the throne of grace. Then He says we should address Him, Hallowed be your name. Once a little boy told his mom he knew God's name. It's Howard. She asked, well, where in the world did you get such an idea? He replied, well, in Sunday school we prayed, Howard be your name. (laughs) Can't believe you laughed at that joke and not some of my other ones. Of course, this word hallowed is a derivative of holy. It means to set apart. To hallow God's name is to acknowledge His preeminence, His supremacy. Oh, God is my daddy. There is an intimacy there. But God is also transcendent. Yes, He's nigh, but He's also high. God is holy. That means He's a cut above. He's in a class all by Himself. And He should be reverenced as well as loved. He tells us to pray, Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God's kingdom is His rule, His reign. It's not a land or a palace or an army. It's His rule. It's His reign in our lives. And He doesn't just reign in heaven. We bring His reign to earth when we humbly submit to His will. And then Jesus teaches us to pray, give us this day our daily bread. Notice he doesn't say our daily steak and lobster or our daily chocolate mousse. It's our daily bread. Bread is not a luxury. Bread is a dietary staple. God never tells us he's going to give us all that we'd like, but he does promise to provide us all that we truly need. And then we're told to pray, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. C.S. Lewis was once asked, What is found in Christianity which is not found in any other religion? He replied, That's simple. The forgiveness of sins. Be thankful we serve a God who is rich in mercy and who is eager to forgive. He forgives according to His grace. And if God is that eager to forgive us, how can we withhold forgiveness from one another? And then he says, and do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. We've prayed for provision and pardon and here for protection. We should ask God, first of all, to protect us from ourselves. In essence, Lord, steer us clear from the tempting situation. Did you know you can ask God to keep you from your own stupid mistakes? I pray that prayer all the time. Or to... Keep me from biting off more than I can chew or for falling prey to Satan's tricks or even from being bullied by evil. We can pray these things. Jesus' model prayer closes as it began with praise. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. All prayer should be full of praise. And then he adds a postscript. Jesus says, For if you forgive men their trespasses... Your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Those are some difficult words. Often this verse is explained by cause and effect. 
you know, if you receive forgiveness, then you'll show forgiveness. And that's true, but that's not really what the verse says. Maybe Jesus just intends for us to take this verse literally. Kind of reads to me like the Father went to such great extremes to forgive us. My, He sacrificed His only Son. That if we then turn around and withhold forgiveness from others, He takes it personally. He considers us a bunch of ingrates and pulls a plug on our forgiveness. And who can blame Him? I'm not sure how that all figures into my theology. But it's what Jesus says. I suggest we take heed. Hey, to be on the safe side, why don't you just bury the hatchet and forgive that guy that you've been holding a grudge against? Well, finally, to avoid joining the pharisaical circus, you also want to avoid ring three. That's the farce of fasting. He says in verse 16, Moreover, when you fast, do not be like the hypocrites with a sad countenance. For they disfigure their faces, that they may appear to men to be fasting. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. Oh my, when the Pharisees fast, everyone knew it. He'd muse his hair, and he'd rip his clothes, and put ashes on his head, and wear sackcloth. He'd even paint his face with a white paste that made him look weak and anemic and and pale. The guy looked like an unmade bed. The Pharisees wanted everyone to know what an extreme sacrifice they were making for God. It was a farce. And sadly, the pity they got from people was their only reward. In light of this charade, Jesus tells his followers in verse 17, When you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, so that you do not appear to men to be fasting, but to your Father who is in the secret place. And your father who sees in secret will reward you openly. Jesus has said, put a little gel in your hair, man. Splash on a little cologne. Don't tip it off that you're involved in a fast. You know, I heard a person say one time, you can be a fundamentalist, but you don't have to look like one. <laughs> if you can't enjoy your fasting, then why fast? The point of saying no to food is saying yes to God. And obedience to God always produces great joy with me. To me, the most repulsive kind of spiritual showmanship is the woe is me, servant of God kind of pity party. The pouting pastor. The guy who wants to make a show of how hard he's got it and all the sacrifices he's making. Man, with your first pat on the back, you've received the totality of your reward. Is that really a good trade-off? Pity from another human being for God's priceless reward? Let me close with one more story. It's a family story. Once my kids and I, we were talking about heavenly rewards. Both Zach and Nat, they were still tots at the time. And I can't even remember what brought up the subject. But they had thought this thing through. They had given this some time. I'll never forget my little theologian Zach. He asked me, he said, Dad... Since heaven is perfect, and since we'll already have everything that we want in heaven, what's left for God to give us as a reward? Wow. I wasn't quite sure how to, how to answer that question. I was still groping for an answer when Natalie bailed me out. Her little voice, she kind of chirped in. She said, I know what reward I want. 
I want hugs and kisses from Jesus. Wow. And did you know my daughter's answer that day upped the ante on my whole life in ministry? For if all I'm after are some metal crowns, I might be tempted to forfeit a crown or two for some here and now glory. But if we're talking hugs and kisses from Jesus, I'm holding out for all I can get. Nothing compares to the love of our Lord Jesus. Well, this morning, let's check our motive. For intimacy can be imitated. You worship God. You give and you pray and you fast. But do you do it to be seen by men? Or do you do it because you truly love God and want to see Him praised? You know, there's a law that's still on the books in the state of Georgia that restricts a child from running off to join the circus. This must have actually happened to a congressman sometime in the past, and he enacted this law to keep it from happening again. But I hope this never happens to God's kids. Don't you run off to join the three-ring circus of hypocrisy, the game of giving and the performance of prayer and the farce of fasting. Guys, our motive matters. If your goal is to be seen by men, then you have your reward. God wants sincere worship. Here's a final thought. If the rewards that we've been promised are hugs and kisses from Jesus, then we're going to want every single one.